reality is like in North America, urban centers are just very expensive. And it's very difficult as a new investor to get in there into something that makes sense. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Steph and Mike young investors who are looking to um, acquire their first real investment property. I think you guys already have a condo and uh, now they're beginning to dip their toes into the market and they've got a bunch of questions, mostly around finding deals and how to structure those deals that they're going to work off the bat. But guys, welcome. Thanks so much. (laughs) Do you guys have a couple of words by way of introduction about yourselves? Uh, Sure. So... So I can start uh, by introducing myself. My name is Michael. We're, we're both uh, young real estate investors. We're just uh, getting started. Uh, we have one condo, like you said, now, um, but we're looking to expand our portfolio. Um, our goal for this year is really to just buy one real estate property together. And then I guess our future goals are really to replace our, our expenses with investment, uh, real estate investment uh, revenue. Yeah. Hi, my name's Stephanie. Basically what Michael said, um, we're new investors. <laughs> yeah, we're looking to get into multifamily and we have our short-term goals and long-term goals, but we're reaching out to Terry today to help us figure out a little bit more on how we can get that first property this year, the first multifamily property. All right. Trying well, to get. We're all on board with that. And that just uh, as a footnote, so I met uh, Steph and Mike at our monthly networking events of which the next one is May 25th. So listeners, if you don't have plans on the evening of May 25th, I expect to see you all at the investor evening. And uh, all right, so let's kick it off. What's uh, your first uh, question that you want some help with? Yeah, so I guess the first question is more quantitative. Like how do you look at a market and know that that's where you're, you want to invest in? Because I find it difficult to have multiple properties scattered all over the air, all over, like, let's say Quebec. How do you focus on one market and know that's where I want to be for the next few years and that's where I want to continue purchasing properties? So, I mean, part of that is kind of a strategic decision. You know, like, I don't think I can give you a blanket statement and be like, this is how you know. You know, for me, like when I'm looking at a market, there's a few things that um, I want to see. First of all, because of the type of investor I am, I want the deal to be relatively cash flow neutral right off the bat. So I don't want to be, you know, buying or recommending that other people buy uh, properties that are really in the negative. So that's like one deciding factor. It's going to eliminate a lot of stuff. Um, then I also like solid market fundamentals and solid like kind of economic data. So if I'm looking, uh, you know, at a submarket, so like obviously in Quebec, there's Montreal, there's Quebec City, there's Gatineau, and then there's like all of the other smaller markets that are somewhere in between. And when I look at those those smaller submarkets, I want something that has some kind of solid economic backbone that means it's not going to be subject to some kind of like weird thing. So, you know, I'll give you an example any kind of government industry. So hospitals, CGEPs, universities, prisons, <laughs> or to large retirement communities, like anything that are basically stable, recession-proof industries that if even if industry like, you know, 
uh, farming or resource-based industry kind of tends to go up and down. Specific industries go up and down, but those kind of government like stable things kind of kind of tend to maintain themselves. And then also places that have significant in my in migration, you know. And I'm thinking of places like you know Sherbrooke, um, obviously Trois Rivières, uh, potentially Joliet maybe Victoriaville, you know, like those kind of places that have have uh, specific draws that are going to bring people in. And then, you know, then the other question is demographics. Like, who do you want your your tenants to be? Because your tenants are kind of the clientele that you're serving. And so, you know, I'm thinking of a, a place like St. Jerome, for example. Like St. Jerome, there's part of it that is um, like relatively well off. There's also part of, the, of it that's like really considered to be quite sketchy. And then the question is, like, is that the kind of property that you want to own an hour away from where you live, where if something goes wrong, um, you know, not to say that that can't be an investment strategy for some people, but it's also like a gut check just to like know the area. And so I think that could also just in terms of like what your research is, like one thing is if you just go on Google and you look at, you know, the industries that are in certain areas or, or where the CGEPs are, like look at, you know, University of Quebec. Where does University of Quebec have their uh, polls? Where are their CGEPs? Like en, en région, right? If you're looking at investing out of Montreal, like where are the CGEPs? And like that information is there. And then you can also look at, obviously the CMHC has really good data in terms of which markets are growth markets. So that's another resource um, that you can look for. And then you have to just go there. You have to go there, see how you feel about it. And then um, in terms of like mapping who you're going to work with, like if you're investing remotely, you're going to need a team and you're going to need to build a team. And so like knowing people and feeling good about the people that you know in that market, like obviously you can build those relationships, but uh, the reality is that in smaller markets, it's going to be, you're just going to have less people to choose from. And so, you know, you want to pick somewhere that you feel like I actually want to work with those people. And I feel like I can, there's the depth of professionals that if I need to hire someone, like there will be someone competent in that market that I want to work with. Okay. Mm -hmm. And just to to come back to the data, uh, you said that when you initially purchase a property, you you tend to want it to be cash flow neutral. There are obviously other metrics as well that are involved. So when you run the numbers on a property, what kind of benchmarks are you looking for? Is there a minimum, let's say, cap rate that you'll go into, or is there a minimum ROI that you're looking for when you're purchasing a property? So I mean, in terms of like the market metrics, you know specific markets have specific metrics, right? Mm -hmm. So like, let's say if we're talking about like GRMs um, are like the, you know, maybe more of a, a rule of thumb uh, with smaller properties, the cap rates may be like a bit less, less of an indicator. The G GRM uh, usually works better. And so like, if you look at like the GRMs in a specific market, like let's say you're buying, for example, in Trois-Rivières, it's a market I know, um, you know, in there maybe 13, 14, 15 is a decent GRM. If you're looking then in Montreal, like that, is low. Like mm -hmm. you're not going to find a, a 13 or 14 GRM. You might find 15, but it's going to be like really super ghetto uh, mm -hmm. in Montreal. So, you know, it's a question of knowing in that specific market, what are the metrics? And then if you want to like lay on top of that, uh, what's going to be cash flow neutral? I mean, like those are related variables. Because obviously, like the lower the GRM is, the more likely it is that your property is going to be cash flow neutral, especially like in a kind of 
I want to say a high interest environment. It's actually an interest neutral environment because five percent mm. is a like kind of a, a normal interest rate. But like for us who are used to like transacting at two percent, so at five percent, it's pretty difficult to make um, make make a lot of deals make sense. So I would say that. And if and if you want to kind of know like at what baseline is the market transacting at? I mean, you can pull the data from Centris and you can definitely see like what is the average GRM of the sale price in a specific area. If you want the the sold comparables, you got to ask your broker, but they can generate that uh, that report for you. Okay. Okay. And going back to the cash flow neutral for like, let's say for us, we want to be able to replace our income with cash flow. Why would I want to start with something that's cash flow neutral as opposed to something cash flow positive? Like, I guess when the tenants change over, you're able to bring up those those rents. Like, how does that work? Why is that like reassuring to know that you're investing in something cash flow neutral? Well, because the the state of the market today, like, you're not going to find properties that are immediately cash flow positive. Like, mm -hmm. not on smaller buildings. Maybe if you're buying 40 units, that might be a possibility. But like you know, on, on 12 doors and down, let's say, forget it. Like, it's just not possible today unless somehow, you know, you, you have an off market of someone's grandma who's liquidating something and has no idea what market price is. Like, you're basically not going to buy in a cash flow positive situation. And so, you know, as an investor who's trying to make good medium to long-term decisions, you have to pick something that you can bring there within a year or two. And like, don't, you know, I think um, a lot of, you know, investment hype uh, does new investors a disservice because like you're not going to be making money hand over fist in the first two years. You know, like this is a medium to long term strategy. And like any property, I promise you, any property that you buy that's cash flow neutral today will make money five years from now and it will make even more money 10 years from now. And so the goal is I need to be able today to hold that and have it not bankrupt me and then have the confidence that in five and 10 years, that's going to become an asset that's generating positive cash flow, or at least that the market appreciation is going to bring it to such a point where I'm going to be able to refinance and take money out or sell and make money just because I held that asset over time. So that's the logic. Okay. Understood. I, I think one of the questions that I had you know, when we, when we're getting into this whole real estate investing game, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, buy property. You're going to make tons of money. You're going to cash flow. You can replace your income. Uh, you'll be a millionaire in like five years." So I'm like, "Okay, like I'm ready. Like I want to be a millionaire five years too." So so we we do a bunch of uh, research. We educate ourselves on the topic. Now we're like, "Okay, we've identified the market we want to invest in. We have our down payment." where we know the deals we're looking for, we know what we're comfortable with. So we're, we jump into the market and we're like, okay, deals, I'm here for you. And there's nothing. And and like a month goes by, maybe one property comes up, the offer's already accepted on it. Maybe another month goes by, another one comes up, it slips through our hands. So I think a reality check for us is that it's like not as maybe as fast paced right off the bat as everyone says it is. So maybe you can speak a little bit to like, the deal flow of of real estate investing and like how how fast should we expecting it to go or or are we going too slow? I think one of the things that Steph and I discuss a lot are like, are we moving too slow? Like there's nothing happening right now. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? 
Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Yeah, sure. I mean, so like, don't forget, you know, as you guys are starting out, I think there's two things that make your velocity maybe slower than somebody more seasoned. And like, just to give you a reality check, you know, like I think, you know, me as a, somebody who's more, maybe more seasoned and more active, like I'm looking to acquire something now. I've put maybe, you know, five, six offers on stuff in the last two months, haven't had any accepted offers. So, you know, because there are not thousands of deals out there. There are deals, but there's not, you know, a, a, a huge plethora of deals just waiting to be picked off the tree. I don't think that's the market reality. And and the market reality is that when those deals are there, the economic situation will be such that everybody's scared to pick them, you know? Right. And so, like, this is kind of how it works. Like, like there's a, an investment community who's looking to buy things. And so right now the sale prices are a bit high. It's hard to make a deal work. Six months ago, when people were willing to like chop the price or whatever it was, like nobody wanted to buy because nobody had any visibility of like, are where are the interest rates going to be when I go to the notary and sign this? So like, there's right. there's always challenges. So I think I think that's the first thing. So I think uh, you know as a as a new investor or even as somebody more seasoned, like it's always kind of difficult to know is this the right is this the right deal for me and then you know the the supply of them uh is is never really raining that's the first thing and i think the second thing is also you know as far as like your network goes and where you find deals from i mean the reality is when you're starting out you're kind of limited to mls right yeah unless you have some some other kind of strategy that you're working which is like you know either you can you're doing direct mailings or like you're doing a lot of prospecting and so like maybe somebody who has a bigger network, like has um, either wholesalers that they work with or like bird dogs that they work with has developed like additional channels, which other people can bring you stuff. So, you know, like of, of the five, six offers that I made, I think two or three of them. So maybe like 30, 40% were brought to me by off market dealers who, mm. you know, take a percentage or, or whatever it is. And so like basically kind of wholesalers. And so if you, you know, have those relationships, like if you want to have additional deal flow, then you have to cultivate relationships with people like that. And that just takes time, right? It mm -hmm. takes time to find someone who wants to work with you, who you want to work with. And so I, you know, I think uh, based on, on what I see of what you guys are doing, it looks like you're, you know, you're doing all the right things and you also want to. So that's like, I think that's the how are you managing your deal search? And I think then there's also your comfort level, right? And how fast do you want to move? And like, it's your first, you know, it's your first deal. It's got a lot of zeros attached to it. It's normal that you don't move at the same speed as somebody who has their business model super down and knows exactly, you know, like, like waiting on the sidelines as a feeding frenzy who like maybe, you know, somebody who's more in my position, that's what it is. Like there are certain markets that I'm looking at and like every day I'm like, and something comes up, like, call my broker. Okay, quick, offer. And so it's normal that, like, you guys are not in that position because it, it takes you two, three, four days to look at something, mull it over, be like, does this make sense for us? Like, here are my questions. And then by that time, somebody who's, like, more voracious has already locked it up. And so, like, you guys miss opportunities. And, like, that's also 
part of their learning process that like people realize that in a market where like you do have to move quickly for good deals, like then the analysis phase is just going to next time, you know, somebody sends you a deal that looks good. You're not going to spend three days analyzing it. You're going to be like, no, quick, lock it up. And then let's analyze after. Yeah. So shoot first, ask questions later. But yeah, it's normal exactly. that you're you're in a learning curve with that comfort and to also realize that like making an offer, it's like it, an offer is nothing right like like it's conditional on a visit it's conditional on all sorts of things so like if there's one thing you don't like just back out of it so yeah. don't be afraid you know don't be afraid to make offers mm -hmm. yeah, that's another thing that, that i think we learned is that for me when putting an offer is like putting your money on the table and i'm like wait i'm not ready to do that just yet yeah. but it's really not the case no that's really that's really not what it is it's just basically like you want to you want the horse to open its mouth like yeah. you're going to the market and you're like i want to look in the horse's mouth and like if you don't like what's in the horse's mouth we'll walk away Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're talking about those sharks in those very hot markets. What about like this more like tertiary markets? What are your thoughts on those? I feel like if no one really has their eyes on them, there's there could be a lot of opportunity there. I mean, I think I think the reality is there aren't very many interesting markets that nobody has their eyes on. I think there are places in the market where there's less competition. And I think, you know, if you're looking at fourplex, fiveplex, those are like small investor products. And most investors look at, like professional investors look at six doors and up just because of the financing situation. Most people who are looking for, you know, single family or looking for housing for themselves will look at triplexes and down just because those properties tend to be nicer to live in. So I think there's this kind of, you know, those like smaller, let's say three to five doors. Like I think there's a zone there that's not as competitive because they're not really owner occupied. They're not geared to owner occupied and like more seasoned investors leave those alone. So, you know, if I think of people such as yourselves, I think like that's kind of punching in your own weight class because the other people who are in that in there are people like you. It's usually people who buy are buying their first investment property or maybe their second investment property. And so you're more likely to be punching within your weight class, I think, with mm -hmm. that kind of product that then either below when you're like dealing with the people who like fall in love with the place and are willing to put extra money because they're in love with it. You don't want to be competing with those people and you don't want to be competing with like the Terry's who have been watching <laughs> that market for two years to jump on like the first, you know, six, eight, yeah. 12 flex that appears there. So, right. <laughs> okay. I'm just curious because right now, like you said, we're really mostly on the MLS and that's kind of all we see. But I know that's really just like the surface level of what, what comes to market. But I know there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Like what would you say, what percentage of deals are happening off of the MLS compared to what's happening on the MLS? Is it like half the properties are being sold off market or what would you say? Well, again, it depends on what market segment you're in. Like, I would yeah. say the bigger the properties are, the more likely you are that they're not on MLS. Like, there's not that many 40-unit, 25-unit properties on there. But, like, that's not where you guys are. I think that, like, in the market segment where you are, I would almost say, like, probably 70, 75% of those deals are happening through the MLS. Okay. And there's, like, maybe, a you know, 25 that I have. I don't actually have data, so I'm just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, shooting from the hip. But that would be my sense. So I think, and, and even, you know, more seasoned investors like will do deals off the MLS if their market, if their like business model is not prospecting, right? Like okay. there are, you know, and again, you, you kind of, 
this is where you find your feet with time. Like there are people who are prospectors. Like I have colleagues who that's all they do is they have an office. They send out X number of letters a month. They know that of that, they're going to have this kind of response rate. And so all they do is follow up with like the little old ladies who want to sell and have no idea what their place is worth. Right. Okay, but yeah. like that, that it's not, that's not like, um, it's not like the Yukon gold rush, right? Like, because that takes work. And then believe me, actually, uh, anecdote, like actually, you know, as an agent represented somebody who, um, was, was had that strategy. And like, for me as an agent, it was like the worst, worst headache pro possible. Right. Because you have to, um, deal with these people who like they don't really want to sell they're not super informed and so you have to kind of coax them like hold their hand through this like very painful process to like sometimes at the end they just pull out because they're not happy or they have this suspicion that if they put it on the MLS they're going to get a better deal right. um, so that can work but it's a specific business model that you have to build you know if that's what you want to if you want if that's what you want to do you can do it but it's not like that part like the acquisition process will be a slower process whereas like mm -hmm. if you see something on the mls just like call up your agent and be like put an offer and then you're buying it tomorrow like that whole process is really streamlined because by the time someone puts that up there i'm selling at this price it needs to go you want to buy it take it away as opposed yeah. to like six months of painful hand holding and like explaining and them you bring the papers, they don't want to sign the papers, then they've signed the papers, then they're mad that they signed the papers, then there's little, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But is there that misconception that people who are selling on the MLS really want like the most money they can get from it? Or are there still opportunities on the MLS of people who are just desperate and they want to get rid of it? Well, I, mean, I think the reality is a mar like a market is a market. Okay. Like if you want to, you know, buy a 2012 Toyota, whatever, like if, and that thing is worth $6,000, like you're not going to buy it for $3,000. You're not going to buy it for $9,000. The, you know, market range is between five to seven. Five is going to be a shit car. Seven is going to be one that's, you know, had one owner who's a little old lady who's now liquidating it. And I, I think it's a it's a misconception or it's a mistake to think that like oh you can beat the market like no the market knows what something is worth and so if you try if you do a deal on the MLS you will pay market value you know and it's not to say that like in the last year where there were some kind of more distressed sellers could you uh, you know meet that one succession seller who is going to sell for 300k under asking price because they have no choice and they have some pressure and they don't want to carry the cost of that property going forward at a higher interest rate. Yes. Is that the reality today? Not so much, you know, like market conditions fluctuate. Now we're at the end of our tightening cycle. I think there's more market confidence coming back. And so the sellers are not willing to give crazy price reductions on things. And so you have to just part of part of the process is to feel out what is the speed of this market? And, you know, like we're in, like, I'll, I'll use the car analogy and we're in a post-COVID world. There are no secondhand cars on the market. If you're trying to buy a $6,000 car for $4,500, like you're just going to be sitting on the sidelines and not having it work. We're like, oh, well, you know, this coach said you can, or, or this particular book said you can pick up a, you know, a foreclosure at X, whatever. Like, no, not in Montreal, not in 2023. 
mm-hmm. not on April, uh, you know, not on May 8th, right? Like, <laughs> that's just not the reality today. So, okay. And let's say working with a prospector or a wholesaler, they find these off market deals. There's this stat going around, like you can save up to 30%, but then you also have to pay that wholesaler their fee for finding it. So are you really saving that much money? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, that doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Well, so, I mean, like think it through. Okay. So like, yes, wholesalers, they have to make their percentage. So like, you know, of what, based on what I've, what I've seen, do you get a discount when you're dealing in off-market properties? Probably you do get a, get a, a, you know, a discount, even once you've paid whatever fees you need to pay to the people who found the deal for you. But then you need to ask yourself, why is that an off-market deal? And, you know, I've, I've done a couple of off-market deals myself. And when you then get to taking over the property and you see what it is like often there's a reason why it's off market and either it's because there's some kind of problem that they don't want to declare in an mls way because the like mls and and going through like the traditional channels it's very like regulated as to doing a seller's declaration and the kind of stuff like if a broker is going to go and put their name on something like they have to it's trans it's it's um transacted on the open market and you have a lot of like conformity stuff to do so if you're trying to hide something or if you're trying to do a sale with less due diligence off market's a good place to go and then the other thing is you know when are there other barriers to doing the deal in a kind of a conventional way and and you know anecdotally i can tell you one story one story about a building that i bought off market it was so the owner was like very special like very special and difficult to deal with so like he was paranoid about having his tenants know he was selling and having different people coming through the building. So that was like a paranoia for him. And then also like his paperwork, like all of his stuff was just not in order. And it was not in order in a way that could be easily sold on MLS. So we did get the deal at a discounted price, but we've paid the price for that, um, you know, in the first whatever year or two of ownership because you know, you try to get the old owner to cooperate with you. He's like a very special guy who like doesn't return phone calls. We need some papers from him. He's not giving us the papers. Like the, some of the stuff he said about the building, like wasn't true. We discovered a whole bunch of problems. So then like, are you going to go through the latent defect thing? And then also not to mention, so there was actually like an agent in that situation, but you then have to work with the pocket listing agent. And like, this is like, I hate that i hate it with a passion because i have like you know i have my way of working i have a broker that i work with you know when i buy and sell myself because you can't as a broker you can't represent yourself and like i love the way he works he's super professional everything is very straightforward but like the reality is like a lot of agents don't work that way and then you're like pulled into their whirlwind of like unprofessional behavior and like that for me is like enough to be like okay you know terry you're gonna make 50k in the buy but you're going to have to deal with this agent who, like, I really don't want to deal with. So yeah. what, what's that worth, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. You have to weigh the pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's no, there's no Eldorado. You know, like, I think, I think people get in thinking, and this is the industry that does a disservice, thinking that there's like, oh, this, there's this, like, hidden gold mine somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. no, there's not a hidden gold mine. There's a market, and people are transacting at a certain thing. If you're willing to try to bypass and pay less than market price, you're going to have to take some kind of hit. Like there's going to be a sacrifice involved. And if that mm-hmm. sacrifice is working with people who are annoying to work with or taking over properties that are like, you know, not in a state to be transacted on MLS, well, like that's, 
you know, the paperwork's not in order, the stuff is not like transacted in a way where you can do your due diligence in a streamlined and calmed way, calm way. Well, that's you're because you're willing to take on that headache, you're going to get a small discount. So yeah, exactly. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Do we have time for another question maybe? Yes, you do. Go for it. Uh, okay. So we have recently been more comfortable with investing outside of our living space, like outside of Montreal. So before a couple of weeks ago, we were really dead set on investing somewhere we could drive to because that's the impression that we had. So now we're a little bit more comfortable investing in maybe a secondary market like Trois-Rivières where it's, let's say, a two-hour drive away. So we're not going to be you know, able to go every day if, like, should there be a problem, um, but we're still you know, relatively comfortable investing there. But what are the risks of you know, investing somewhere where you can't necessarily be there at a moment's notice? Okay, so I think before I answer that question, I'm going to just give a little bit of background because I think this is a, a very good question and it's a conversation I'm having like with just about every investor who's starting out today. So I think that it's, it's it's very relevant. So the reality is like in North America, urban centers are just very expensive and it's very difficult as a new investor to get in there into something that makes sense. It's even difficult for seasoned investors to make deals that make sense in those markets and what you're beginning to see is that there's like kind of a flight of the money into the secondary markets because the primary markets are just not profitable, right? So I think you guys are, you know, you're asking those questions because you're at a point where just about everybody is. Like that's the state of the ecosystem today. And so if you guys want to start out, like when I started out, that was not one of the challenges that we faced, right? It, but today that's a challenge that young investors have. And so you know, good on you that you guys are looking that in the face and kind of not shying away from it and sitting on the sidelines. So, but I think that that's a question everyone has to ask themselves. And and maybe, you know, your brain has this phenomenon of um, the question you ask, it will find the answer to, mm. right? And so like, if you're asking the question, well, what are the risks? Like, I can answer that question, but a different question might be, how will I set myself up for success in that particular situation? And mm -hmm. so let me choose to rather answer that question. And I think, you know, the first thing is in terms of your data gathering and decision making, like you need to research the market, you need to know the town or the area of towns that you want to invest in. And you do that by taking some of your time, go drive there, go walk there, go have a coffee there, like see how you feel about people, visit a few properties, go into them, look at the basements, look at the tenants, like are these, is, are you comfortable with this? You know, and I think I think that's the first thing you need to just like go out there and get the lay of the land. So that's a little bit of work and it takes time because if you're driving two hours, like you can't do that for whatever. But like, you know, when I when I was in that doing that process, I like went and spent a couple of long weekends there and, uh, you know, just rented a hotel room and spent some time there, you know, mm -hmm. like talk to an agent. I want to visit three, four properties knowing that I don't really want to buy them. I just want to, you know, see what they look like. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first thing is just to get your own comfort level. Be like, okay, this is eh, no, I don't see it, or this, yeah, I could see myself like doing business here, you know. So okay. I think that the one thing is like physical comfort, and um, then the other thing is is relationships, and you know the the reality is you're going to need boots on the ground. Yeah. So how do you start to build those relationships once you've picked a market? And my advice is start building them before you even have closed on a property because it's going to make you feel more comfortable. And when I bought my first not local property, I actually, I picked my property manager before I even put an offer on anything. 
And I went, mm. I went to sit down with like, you know, two or three people. And I was like, okay, I'm an investor from Montreal. I'm going to acquire my first property here. And I want to be sure that the day I go to the notary, I know who's going to go pick up the keys. Tell me about your services. Tell me about your portfolio and like start having that conversation before like or simultaneously to looking for a property because once you have that mapped out your comfort level of going there is going to just go way up like when you mm -hmm. feel like oh i have a good you know i have a good feeling about this person and like untested business relationships are untested business relationships so it turned out that that property manager was really horrible and i had to fire them <laughs> later <laughs> but but you know it was not catastrophic it was i did have someone to go pick up the keys the day after the notary it allowed me to take that step that was the right step for me and then you figure it out Mm -hmm. there's yeah. no such thing as a real estate career in which nothing ever goes wrong mm -hmm. so yeah that's true so it gives you the confidence to go into the market and then you deal with the problems later <laughs> and, you, and and because you have a team your whole team is not going to blow up all at the same time mm -hmm. like you're going to have one maybe leg of the stool like fall out and that's going to be a bit stressful but like if you you know have a relationship with the, the snow removal people you have a maybe a, someone at the tenants who like does some some stuff for you like whatever it is you're gonna have or the old handyman who used to work on the property before you hired the the manager like you're gonna have other resources um if you build those relationships and and you could even like the next step which i didn't do but which would be a good thing is to just attend meetups in that market mm -hmm. like there are for sure real estate meetups um you know smaller things evenings hosted by brokers whatever it is like and and if you go out of your way to find those things you will find them and that's a great way to build relationships in those markets so that you have a, a comfort level it's mm, a great point yeah i like that awesome okay so i think that just about takes up the time that we have for today hopefully that uh gives some value and a little bit of information to people who are starting out and um, looking for deals. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to chat with me, uh, share your questions. Obviously, these coaching calls are, you know, valuable for you, but I think they're also valuable for the listeners because the reality is like the questions that you guys have are questions that like I have those conversations like three, four times a week because everybody who's sitting where you are has those same questions. So you're in good company. <laughs> Definitely. listeners and my friends on screen <laughs> yeah. so um thank you for tuning into this episode of the real estate investors club podcast if you enjoyed this if you found it of value please like share send it to somebody who you think could benefit from this information and not uh, tune in next week thanks for listening to the real estate investors club podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did remember to give us a rating leave a comment subscribe and share you can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.